Scary Stories, number three, A Pot of Water. Hello, I am Dr. Robert Ancillary, curator of the Museum of Anomalous Experience. Visitors to our museum will know that in addition to the 2,300 artefacts that make up our collection, the museum is also known for having the country's only remaining original Victorian 28-foot Lazy Susan in the main hall, on which a number of our exhibits are mounted. This arrangement allows tired guests to remain seated while the exhibits pass slowly in front of them. It's not without its drawbacks, and in the summer of 1996, a work-experienced caretaker accidentally crashed the gears, resulting in many of the exhibits being flung outwards and impacting with force upon the walls. This was a sad time for us. Some of our items were irreparably damaged, while other, rarer exhibits escaped into the sewers and were never seen again. During the clean-up following the accident, I happened upon a thick glass jar strong enough to withstand bouncing off the wall, sealed with wax and apparently containing water. Its yellowing handwritten label read simply, Water Spirit. Intrigued, I decided to read up through the museum's extensive archive of 3 by 5 inch index cards, which we migrated to as part of a recent IT project. What I found reminded me that only a tiny percentage of what we perceive comes from our senses. Much of what we are actually aware of comes from within. In October 1955, Alan Aldershot went to visit his doctor. This wasn't an unusual event. He had also been before in October, three times in September and twice in August. Alan worried about his health, his finances, working, not working, and worrying. Realising that his patient was unlikely to just take advice to simply have a holiday, the doctor decided to recommend something a little different and play on the credulity of a man who could apparently believe he had all the diseases that the newly formed National Health Service had to offer. It's very clear to me now, uh, you have what is known as Bevert's Syndrome, said the doctor, choosing the name of a personal friend. In severe cases, it can be fatal. Fatal, said Alan. Yes, replied the doctor. Everyone suffering from Bevert's eventually dies, although in some cases after many years there is no conventional cure. No cure, said Alan. No conventional cure. I'm going to tell you a closely guarded secret, the doctor said. On Exmoor there is a pool of water fed by a natural spring. The water emerges from the ground at 98.6 Fahrenheit, exactly human body temperature. The reason for this is not known, nor is it known why every sufferer from Bevitt's syndrome appears to be cured by bathing in this pool for five minutes, but only if they bathe in it after dark. The doctor then described some approximate landmarks he could recall from a recent holiday of his own, and sent Alan off to book what he trusted would be a relaxing walking holiday, searching hopelessly for a non-existent magical pool of water. Alan's trip to Exmoor was uneventful, despite his natural concerns of breakdown, collision, kidnap and becoming irretrievably lost, a strange twist of fate meant that none of these had occurred. This time, at least. He set out from his hotel on the first day of his holiday, the doctor's sketchy, handwritten directions in his hands. It took several hours to find the first of the landmarks on the list, and the directions were less than accurate, so by the end of the second day he had progressed little further. That night he returned to his room. By day this appeared relatively comfortable, but by the dim electric light 
A crack in the wall had become visible, which Alan saw as an obvious indication of the building's imminent collapse. Worse, hushed voices in the next room were plotting some kind of conspiracy. Probably fire-related, the escapes from the building were frankly inadequate, and his room was at the end of a long hall. And there was the ever-present threat of his Bevitt syndrome, which must explain the nagging pain behind his eyes and the itchiness of his feet. For distraction, he decided to go down to the lounge and read a book he had acquired on the possibility of sudden holes opening in the floor as a result of subsidence into underground caverns. On entering the room, he distinctly heard one of the local girls say the words magical pool, but then stop immediately when they saw him. What do you know about a magical pool, he asked abruptly, but she left the room giggling. Alan sat and read, but he was unable to concentrate on being swallowed up by the earth as his mind kept drifting to the ridiculousness of his situation. He was becoming something of a laughing stock, even before mentioning his challenge to anyone. It was all clearly nonsense, he saw that now. The pool of water did not exist. He was going to die from this disease. He opened the book up at a random page. The first words he read were, which was not there during the previous day. Perhaps the reason for the nighttime bathing was because the pool did not exist in the daytime. This would explain the difficulty he had had in locating it. He had a simple choice. Give in to the disease or go out in search of the pool. He returned to his room, kitted himself out and set off into the darkness. There was nothing to lose. The hotel was going to collapse anyway. Alan's initial confidence waned as soon as he was out of sight of the hotel. Despite the moon being bright, he quickly became disorientated and couldn't find his way back. The panic began to rise inside him, but then he saw a stone bridge in a valley to one side. This was the doctor's first waypoint. Over a hill was a small copse of trees, and within it a standing stone, the second waypoint. A small path led down a hill, past a pair of dead trees, the third waypoint. As Alan began to realise that he may actually have to go through with this, he saw steam rising gently in the distance. There was the pool, just as the doctor had described it. Alan looked around him. No one was visible. He carefully removed his clothes, taking care to preserve the creases in his trousers, and put them on a nearby rock. He took one last nervous glance around him, and then carefully as there was the distinct possibility of slipping on the damp stones and doing oneself an injury, or perhaps of catching athlete's foot from a previous bather, made his way across the rock. He paused briefly, the night air cold against his skin, weighing the alternate risks of being seen versus plunging into potentially icy water. He jumped in. The water was warm and welcoming and surprisingly deep. He pondered briefly on how he would know when the five minutes was up, but after a while had a strange sensation that something from deep in the pool was reaching for his ankles, so he quickly got out, dressed, and made his way back to the hotel. He was only a few yards from the pool when he heard a soft brushing noise from behind him. He turned, but it stopped. A few steps further again came the sound, almost imperceptible even in the stillness of the night. A sound like something being dragged far away. Alan decided to ignore it and continued on his way. But an intense feeling of being followed haunted him for the next thirty minutes. He stopped a number of times and once there seemed to be the distant silhouette of a figure. But in the moonlight it could have been a tree, a traffic sign or a distant relative, 
Was that just the moonlight reflecting off the bald head? A tiny movement from something trying to stand still? Or just Aunt Mavis with a warning to wrap up warm against the cold? Alan set off back to the hotel. He did not look back again until he reached it. She was still standing after all, although Alan was not surprised to see this, which was itself, ironically, something of a surprise. Although exhilarated, Alan felt tired, hungry and dirty, although he did notice that the pain behind his eyes had gone. In stark dereliction of his parents' advice never to eat within an hour of swimming, otherwise the body of water that you were swimming in would track you down wherever in the world you happened to be and give you stomach cramps, he tucked into a sizable dinner. He decided to run a hot bath before bed and went to the bathroom. While the bath was running, he ran the tap on the sink to wash his toothbrush, but found the water strangely entrancing. In fact, he was unable to take his eyes off the gently trickling flow. Edging slowly backwards, he found himself similarly drawn to the soft, bubbling surface of the bath, and before he knew it, he was in, face down, struggling for breath, thrashing around. He felt as though suddenly the bath was much larger, the distance to the edges that much further, as though the will required to reach the edge was more than he could muster. The water was warm, sweet, inviting, and he was aware of a benevolent figure standing above him, looking down. His concerns ebbed away eroded by the welcoming water. A pang of panic struck him. He surged from the bath, compelled by the sudden realisation that all was not well, his urgency tempered only by the nagging doubt that he'd forgotten to put down a bath mat. The feeling of contentment was an illusion. Something was pursuing him, had followed him from the pool. He ran into his room where he dressed, drying thoroughly between his toes. The towel lay damp on the floor. Alan found himself staring at it, it seemed to beckon him, urge him to wrap himself in it. He tore away his attention, which was instead seized by a glass of water by the bed, inviting him to consume it, gulp it down, inhale it, draw it into him. Alan stumbled downstairs and crashed into the bar. Every bottle on the bar was speaking to him, calling for his attention, each glass of liquid on the bar singing sweetly to him. Alan fought his way out of the bar and into the kitchen, where the chef stared at him, bewildered. A tap ran in the sink. Alan was pulled towards it, irresistibly. Unable even to avert his gaze, he scrabbled around him, and as his head began to lower into the welcoming, warm water, his hand found a glass jar and thrust it under the streaming liquid. He jammed the lid on, turning the tap off as he did so. The urge disappeared. Alan fell to the floor, panting. Whatever it was, had been sealed away. He now controlled the spirit. The following day, with the jar in his bag, he set out to catch the train home. Before he left, he sent a telegram to his doctor, which is also in our collection. It reads, Thank you for holiday recommend. Stop. Best fun in ages. Stop. Alan made it onto the train, and oddly... The thought of derailment never even occurred to him. Scary Stories was written and performed by John Thrower for We Are Not Alone 2013. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please download Tallington, our new audio drama series, which will be released in seven weekly instalments starting on January the 5th, 2014.